Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk with electrical engineer James Lewis about the exciting world of capacitors, amazingly useful and surprisingly complex. As part of our discussion, a lot of electrical engineering lingo gets thrown around. So let me give you a quick primer. The capacitor, which is made up of two plates that are separated by an insulator, and that insulator is called a dielectric. The measure of capacitance is the farad, which is very large. So nearly all of the capacitors used in electronics have capacitances that are much smaller than a farad, often microfarads or picofarads. And so a microfarad capacitor becomes a mic cap, and a picofarad capacitor becomes a puff cap. And these capacitors have not only capacitance, but they have some stray resistance, which becomes ESR, equivalent series resistance, or ESL, equivalent series inductance. And early on in our podcast episode, Brian refers to NPO capacitors, which is a form of ceramic capacitor. So sit back and enjoy this episode of the Engineering Commons. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 93, October 15th, 2015, Capacitors. So Adam, in uh, traffic engineering, is there an equivalent to a capacitor? Is it when I get stuck at an intersection? Um, that would probably be about the closest you come up with, although we do not like those. They are a bad thing. You know, the objective <laughs> is not to store people, but to keep people moving. Ah, okay. uh, you, you would know that from uh, a couple episodes ago when we talked about traffic engineering. Yeah, I don't listen to this show. It's terrible. I don't like the host. <laughs> <laughs> so, so would an inductor be one of those multi-level parking garages that has the spiral coming down? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. No, I'm I was not thinking a, a, traffic engineer i'm thinking more like a freeway where it wants to you you gets going you want to keep moving free flow oh, condition yeah, that can work too it's like that phenomenon when you get off a highway and you're driving on regular streets and you uh you want to always keep going 65 70 yeah you see that speedometer 40. like double the speed limit and it's like yeah. oh yeah, yeah yeah nope we gotta hit the brake <laughs> <laughs> good thing there's no cop yeah Yes. Well, we're going to talk all about passives tonight on tonight's show. Um, our guest is uh, James Lewis. James is currently a marketing director at Kemet, a well-known capacitor company. And before joining the uh, dark side on the marketing side of engineering, James was previously an FAE at Kemet. And before that, he did a stint at Agilent. In his free time, he also discusses electronics on his blog, Bald Engineer, and runs the YouTube channel, Adams. James, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Thank you. Good evening. Yeah. How are you doing this evening? Hanging in there. Yeah, glad to hear it. Excited to talk about caps. All right. Well, this is the podcast. Wait, I thought we were talking about buckets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I just recently toured Kemet at the R&D facilities, and I can, I can confirm it was all just buckets of electrons. <laughs> <laughs> and there was just one machine that stamped out capacitors, right? Yep, yep. When it, when it rang a little alarm, someone would just pick up the next bucket and dump it in. The whole process kept moving. It was a small yeah. thing. It was just like the size of an outhouse. <laughs> 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 All 
Right. And, and so, Carmen, there at the beginning, you said we we're going to talk about passives. So for those who are not uh, tuned in to the electrical, electrical speak, what does that mean? Uh, so passive components uh, do not provide any sort of amplification. So things like transistors and diodes, even though diodes really can't amplify, uh, are considered active devices. Um, things like resistors, capacitors, and inductors are passive components. Okay. Because you can't get any gain out of them. Okay. But but I just saw on uh, Dangerous Prototypes, there was a uh, a note on there pointing to the fact that passives really aren't so passive. Mm, I can't really say I know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I think the, the point they were making is that uh, even these passive devices are subject to things like uh, uh, heat. And as, as uh, they, they rise in temperature, their performance changes. And so even though we like to think of them as being sort of fixed devices – their performance does change with, um, you know, voltage and current and temperature and all those kind of things. Oh yeah, definitely. There's, there's still an Ohm's law for capacitors and inductors, but, uh, you know, if I feed a one volt sine wave into a resistor divider, there's no way I'm ever going to get three volts peak to peak out, which is what they mean by passive. But yes, there's all sorts of parasitics and secondary effects that come into play. Right. But I, but I hope that, uh, uh, this evening I will better understand uh, capacitors in particular, but I, I suspect it's much like uh, the nut and, uh, nuts and bolts uh, episode that we did. There is a lot of information that goes into picking out the right bolt, and I suspect there's just as much information required to pick out the right capacitor. Ooh, you wouldn't even begin to know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we will scratch the surface. I'm, wi- I'm willing to learn. Well, uh, actually, my, my Kevin Reb told me it was really simple. All you have to do is put NPOs in for everything. <laughs> so you need a big slug of capacitance. No, then you just use a lot of NPO. <laughs> String in like 50.1s in parallel. Exactly. So, James, let's start off with the uh, standard softball question here. We ask everybody, what uh, what got you into engineering? Well, it actually started when I was in high school. And, um, you know, when I was in high school, the TI-85 was the calculator to get. Um, I don't think there was anything better than that one. And they were relatively new at the time. And um, I was using BBSs. And one day I came across a guide that talked about how to overclock a TI-85. And at the time, that was the I was like, how do you what, what does overclock mean? And you basically you just swapped out, oddly enough, a capacitor. And I think it changed the uh, the RC resonator, which actually effect worked as the clock. And so you could actually get it to go 10 times faster. Oh, wow. And um, what I realized quickly was while I enjoyed that, what I really liked was charging people 20 bucks to do it. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, it, you know, it, it's it was no big deal. The funny thing about it is it took me almost 10 years to realize that the reason I never got them to work very well was I was replacing a surface mount component with a leaded component. But at the time, I had no idea what the difference between the two were. Uh, so you had marketing running through your blood uh, even from the beginning. Early on. <laughs> and, and what can you do with a TI-85 10 times faster? Well, this was when all of the programs you wrote were still uh, based around basic. Mm -hmm. And so all the games ran horribly slow. And so the big thing was make the games run faster. And then about a year later, people figured out how to inject assembly code in and it made the overclocking actually too fast. Mm. Why the processor would just overheat. No, it was just code, the code. So most of the assembly 
assembler programs were based around the original clock rate. And so oh. they, they would just run too fast, but it, it did suck batteries down. I mean, that was, <laughs> that was a huge penalty. In other news, you can actually write games for calculators. <laughs> yeah, you must not have. I had all sorts of games on my calculators on the 83 and the 89. That's how I learned to write software. Yeah, block, block dude is the whole reason I can't do vector analysis. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how did you find this guide to overclock the eighty-five? I mean, there was this was pre-internet, I'm assuming. Was there a shady guy in a, a ham convention, like you know, passing out pamphlets? Now, at the time, I was really into um, online bulletin boards, BBSs. Oh, so okay. I would. So, so I um. I had a I had a, a a pretty good summer job, and so I was able to afford one of these really expensive ninety six hundred baud modems. Well, and so that's too fast. You don't need oh, that kind of speed. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you had to you had to get a new UART, otherwise you'd have buffer overruns and all kinds of other. But uh, but yeah, I would I would get on BBSs, and I was just kind of poking around and just came across some electrical engineering. Um, I want to say Usenet, but I'm thinking Internet. I forgot what we called it, but it was basically like a precursor or not. A, I guess this one had been a precursor to Usenet, but it was kind of like Usenet, except it was shared by bulletin boards. Hmm, interesting. I can't say I have any knowledge of those uh, those days. My first access to the Internet was those AOL CDs. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it happens. I enjoyed the two hours a day I got set by my parents. <laughs> Still managed to learn many of things. <laughs> So you got into engineering or you found out about electrical engineering through those those bulletin boards. Did you always think you wanted to go into the uh, field, field positions and sales or did you have an interest in straight design at first? Um, yeah, originally I thought I was going to be a designer. Um, as a kid, I always wanted to be an inventor and this to me was the obvious path, right? And then my – I guess it was my junior year of college, I did an internship at a computer company in Texas and – um, while I was there, I was debugging a, and I was trying to remember before we started, but I was debugging either it was a multiprocessor system would lock up under a certain condition, or there was something wrong with the memory bus. And I can't remember what the problem was, but a field application engineer from HP at the time, uh, sat down to help me. And, uh, we actually ended up figuring out what the problem was. I didn't know how to solve it, but at least I could go off, go back and tell the design team, here's what's happening. And so as we were walking out, I said, hey, you know, um, I'm graduating next year. I have no idea what I want to do when I grow up. Why don't you tell me about your job? And so he kind of talked about what it's like to be an FAE. And I thought, wow, that sounds a lot more fun than sitting at my desk. <laughs> so the following year was my senior year. I interviewed for jobs. And I was always thinking, I was like, man, I would really like to have that guy's job. Well, turned out he got promoted and moved to Colorado. And at the end of my senior year, I actually got his job. Oh, very cool. Wow. Yeah. So you were working at HP then? Um, I was there when we were switching, when we were spinning out. So okay. technically I was uh, at Agilent. You mean Keysight? Now it is Keysight, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Have we mentioned what an FAE is? I don't believe so, no. James, would you like to enlighten us? <laughs> well, I was actually going to let you guys answer just because I, I, I'm always interested in what other people think it is. <laughs> um, but I, I can. Yeah. So field application engineer or FAE stands for field application engineer. And you're basically a pre and post sales support person for um, 
for your company's products. So in the case of Agilent, I was helping to uh, to use our high-end logic analyzers and oscilloscopes. Cool. <clears throat> From the engineering side, it's who you call when your expensive piece of equipment doesn't work the way you thought it would work. <laughs> and then you have to call in people who understand exactly how it's supposed to work in order to explain it to you. Yeah, I got many of those calls. <laughs> No, really, I'm using this properly. The machine, the equipment's designed wrong. Oh, that was always the or there, there, there is a bug in the software, or there's a bug in the hardware when clearly there isn't. Problem exists between user and floor, between keyboard and floor. Well, it's still a bug. It's just you know a bug with the user, and at least you can make that argument, right? Yeah. So, so James, when you took on this position, did they? Uh, send you to some sort of training or were you on your own to figure out how to use all these uh, high-powered uh, oscilloscopes and logic analyzers? It was a combination. We had a, um, we had a pretty good training program, a lot of training material. One of, the, one of the functions of an FAE is to train your customer on how to properly use the equipment. So mm-hmm. it kind of makes it an e- easy job to, to train a new hire because you already have training material specifically for that purpose. Um, and then... Um, yeah. So, you know, do a little bit of training. And then I did a lot of on the job training. You know, it was, I loved getting those phone calls, you know, this isn't working. So even as a young engineer, you liked being called when things went wrong? Yeah, actually, I thought it was actually the most fun part of the job because you were dealing with all these variables. And so it was truly problem solving, which what engineer doesn't love um, uh, problem solving. And sure. so, so from a training perspective, it was great because it allowed me to learn so much more so quickly and from an engineering point of view, even though I was kind of in a sales job, I never felt like I was selling. I felt like I was solving problems. Neat. Yeah, it's definitely one of the pros of being an FAE is seeing a little bit of everything so quickly when you start off. Instead of having a narrow focus, you know, you are the power supply guy. You are the A to D guy. You get to see everything. Correct. Yeah. And, and how does the uh, – since you, I have two FAEs online here with me, so how does that whoa, work whoa, with – Whoa, excuse me. I mean, <laughs> product line apps, we don't like to be lumped in with those guys, Jeff. I'm, I'm sorry. Gonna, I'm going to be in my trailer. You guys can finish yeah, this Kermit's, up. So. Kermit's too good to be called an FAE. <laughs> All right. Since I have two people who know about this world of, of <laughs> uh, field application engineer and – I'm just curious about the interaction with the sales engineer, whether it's a – from sales engineer to sales engineer, you have to work sort of a – you know, when you get called in uh, for to a client – whether it's a different relationship with each sales engineer you go in with or whether the, the companies try to say, okay, this is how we're going to approach the, uh, uh, the clients. I can't really say I can shed much light onto this one. Uh, unlike James who would get called in when things broke, I only get called in when things are really broken. So we're kind of <laughs> off the playbook <laughs> when I come into play. So, so you're not, you're not ever getting called in when, you know, for early in on the process when the sales engineer is trying to close the deal. No, no. I'm more behind the scenes. Uh, being the product engineer, I'm the expert on the new product they're trying to sell. So I'll provide you know lab data from validation or data sheets or reference designs as needed. Okay. Um, and the sales guys there on the ground, the FAE, providing local customer support. Now, if a production line shuts down because of my part, yeah, then I could very well be hopping on a plane to go in with the FAE. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how long were you at Agilent, James? Um, I was actually there for about 10 years, maybe 11. Okay. Um, but I, I always worked with scopes and logic analyzers. 
Okay. And seeing the effects of stray capacitance slowing down the rising edges on the scope, is that what got you interested in capacitors and the move over to Kemet? Actually, it's a little bit simpler than that. Um, I wanted to get into components. And what I found was, you know, when you don't, when all your experience is around a box that costs $150,000, it's difficult to get into the component business. Um, But I found uh, it was pretty easy to get into, um, to, to meet with people at Kemet because they were looking for, they were looking for FAEs that could talk to customers. And then their focus was, okay, once we find the right people, we'll teach them about capacitors. And so it just was an easy way for me to get into the component business. Oh, very cool. And I have to say, you're the, probably the first component specialist. Well, you're definitely the first component specialist we've had on the show. Uh, but I've never met anybody who actually wanted to move into passives. Not that that's a bad thing, <laughs> but it always just seems like people wind up there. They, they are kind of like the, um, they're the unsung heroes, you know, you know, kind of going back to what you said a minute ago, um, you know, usually as an FAE for a capacitor company, um, when we get phone calls from something not working, it's because something is really not working. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's kind of a, it, it's a unique position. Yeah. If a whole real capacitors goes bad, you're, uh, you, you don't know how many products you could have affected. Correct. So, so how does component manufacturing differ from, uh, you know, some of the more well-known areas of design like robotics or circuit design? So I think the, the interesting thing about, and so when we talk about component in this context, let's talk about, you know, capacitors because that's what I can, I, I yeah, know best. Yeah, we're leaving ICs off of it and everything right. else. What, what interests me is Kemet, we've got something like 10,000 employees, um, a thousand of which have engineering backgrounds and, um, only about a hundred people who have electrical engineering um, degrees. And so when you think about that, that's kind of funny sounding to me is that here we are making a component that goes into every piece of electronics on the planet and electrical engineers make up the smallest portion of our employee base. <laughs> Would you say it's primarily chemical and mechanical? Yeah, absolutely. That's we, we have some of the best material scientists that I've ever met. Uh, but if you ask them to design a circuit board, um, I think they would, that I don't think they'd be able to, uh, to do it. Yeah. I remember, and we will talk more about the, the training program I was at later, but the one guy who talked about MLCCs had a, a chemistry degree. Yeah. Yeah. Chem- chemistry by far is the most popular degree at our company, which is great because when I was in school, that was what I did the worst in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wasn't terrible at it, but it wasn't my, uh, my best subject either. It's kind of just middle of the road, passed and moved on to the next course. Right. And the the employees with the background in chem is that chemistry degrees or chemical engineering degrees? Uh, actually it's a mixture of both. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't and uh, shame on me, I should probably know the better way to break it down, but I just think of them all as material scientists. Um mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean we there's Different. Uh, I, I've talked to different people within the company that have both uh, chemistry and chemical backgrounds. Right, and maybe we'll get into it. But just you know, quarter two or what is the? Uh, why are the chemical engineers and the chemists so important to what you're doing uh, building capacitors? Well, that's a great question. So, if you don't know what a capacitor is, um, in the simplest explanation, it's two metal electrode plates separated by a material, a dielectric. And from a simple point of view, all capacitors are the same. They store power, or I'm sorry, uh, they store energy um, along those electrode plates. However, 
you can use a variety of different materials for the electrodes and the dielectric, and that completely changes the behavior of the device. And so understanding how those materials work, how do you mass produce those materials, that's where that chemical background is so important. Okay. We actually, here's a just a tidbit. I didn't know this until uh, two weeks ago. So if you look at the periodic table, uh, we use somewhere between 70 and 80 different elements to produce our capacitors. And from a dielectric perspective, we only make something like six dielectrics. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, 12 dielectrics. Um, and so that's kind of, think about that for a moment is you have these 12 materials, but it takes us 70 plus chemical or 70 plus elements to produce them. Hmm. It's a good 70 to 80% of the periodic table right there. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. We, uh, and there, there's a handful we don't like to let people know about too. So that's, that's the secret sauce. That is the, the 11 herbs and spices. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I wonder. Yeah. So, so a capacitor is two metal plates with a dielectric in between and it stores charge. Why, uh, why would someone use one in a, a circuit? What are they good for? So there's like five circuit applications for capacitors. And the number one, which I think we estimate 85% of people use it for, is for decoupling. Mm -hmm. So you want to separate one part of your circuit from another part. And then closely related to decoupling is filtering. And so you want to, you know, you want to remove some type of signal from, from a signal path or power plane. So decoupling and, and uh, filtering. Yeah. Now, as an, uh, as an electrical engineer who designs circuits, I still to this day have not had anyone given, uh, nobody's given me a definitive answer on how much decoupling is required for any given circuit. Does anyone <laughs> actually know? Well, no. <laughs> Just, just point one mics everywhere. <laughs> so one one thing I can tell you is we have actually found why using point one mics isn't always the best option. Mm -hmm. But you know there there isn't a good answer to how much decoupling do I need. Yeah. And so. just to expand on this, by decoupling, we're talking about power supply decoupling. So when you have your five volts or your twelve volts coming into your ICs. Um, you know, you always see capacitors on the reference designs from that voltage plane to the ground node, and that uh, keeps the voltage at a steady DC value and gets rid of all the AC junk, um, you know, that could be riding on the line from switching circuits or noise or whatever, coupling in and getting in the way. Or more importantly, the circuit that the actual integrated circuit itself is not pulling current off of the power plane in, sh in straight DC. You know, if it's a microprocessor that it's the core is running at a megahertz, it's generally pulling power at a megahertz. And so you create the little local reservoir of charge in order to not have it affect the rest of the power rail. And the running joke is that almost every app note has 0.1 mic caps on every single power lead. Yeah, that is the standard value capacitor for decoupling pretty much anything. <laughs> Sometimes in conjunction with more or less, but yeah, point one mics are everywhere. And it's 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 kind of turned into the and you know James can really talk more about this. It's become the proverbial seven glasses of water a day. Mm -hmm. No one can quite remember exactly why everyone uses that, but everyone's terrified not to <laughs> put them on their circuit. Yeah, so I can I can actually attest to this. I can I actually have sales data that 
backs us up. <laughs> our <laughs> <laughs> um, are we going to be putting the Kemet sales data here in our show notes? Yeah. This is an exclusive. <laughs> <to the engineering laughs> comments. But but yeah, I mean, by far, I mean, our every time I look at a chart, our number one is um, is almost always a point one mic, especially on ceramics. <laughs> <laughs> So something you said, which triggered in my mind is, you know, it's the, you know, like the seven glasses of water. You know, I think a lot of things that engineers know about capacitors comes from the tribal knowledge of the person before them. And it's interesting to find how much of that is actually true and how much of it isn't true. <sighs> yes, <laughs> I've, definitely. I've, I've, I've put a lot of point one mic caps on circuits, James. <laughs> Well, so so there, there's a good one. So I read an application note one time, and it said, "Use for for de- your decoupling caps, use Wi-Fi-B and Z5U." Um, and I'll explain more in a minute. But basically, those are the worst kind of ceramic capacitors you could get. And in fact, outside of room temperature, they have virtually no capacitance. And so the guy basically wrote, um, "You can put capacitors on here, but as far as I know, they don't matter." <laughs> <laughs> So he just just wanted to make sure when you were wasting your money, you weren't wasting a lot of money. Yeah, it was a, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The equivalent of putting a Band-Aid on uh, an invisible cut a child has to make it feel better. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So before we uh, wander too far astray, uh, James, you were giving us the five applications. We got through decoupling and filtering, and I'm, I'm anxious to hear what the other three were. Oh, man, I was trying to avoid that. <laughs> Michael Scott's 10 Rules of Business. <laughs> so let me, let's, see, let's see if I get these right. Um, so, uh, so we got decoupling, filtering, uh, wave shaping, which in my opinion is a form of filtering. But okay, so wave shaping, uh, oscillation, and then coupling. Ah, uh, yes. Wait, you mean it can be used for both decoupling and coupling? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sometimes you want to get rid of the AC. Sometimes the only thing you want is the AC. Ah. Yes. You'll see the uh, the coupling capacitor if you watch uh, any of Alan Wolke's videos on transistor amplifiers. And it's a pretty common design technique is you put a capacitor in series with the input or the output to only pass the AC portion of the waveform to the amplifier stage. And that allows you to set the DC bias point of each stage individually. So you're always swinging uh, mid-rail, we'll say, for simplicity. So you, you get the widest signal range possible. And it helps prevent one stage from loading down another. So you you know get the best, uh, best bang for your buck when you're building an amplifier. Cool. Yeah. It's fun stuff. And so at the risk of bringing up a topic that's better explained on a chalkboard than on a podcast, it took me a long time to figure out when people said a capacitor passes AC but blocks DC. I spent, as a mechanical engineer, I spent a lot of time looking at that, you know, that schematic symbol, those two plates and the lines coming into it. And I said, I don't get it. I see that DC is blocked, but how in the world is that AC jumps across that gap? All right. The uh the five minute view or two minute view here without the uh <laughs> without the chalkboard. <laughs> so we all know Ohm's law for resistors, V equals IR. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also a, an Ohm's law, if you will, for capacitors, and it's current I equals C capacitance times DV dt, the change in voltage uh with respect to time. 
Mm -hmm. And if you start with that and you do some Fourier transforming on that mathematical expression, you wind up with the impedance of the capacitor uh, is one over, for simplicity, the frequency times the capacitance. Um, and so the frequency portion, you know, since it's in the denominator, that's one over FC, not one over F times C. Uh, the frequency portion, if it's zero, indicating DC, you have infinity, meaning the capacitor is an infinite impedance, so it blocks DC. And if you put in infinity for the frequency, you get zero, so AC signals go right through. Okay. Ta-da! <laughs> right. <laughs> well, so so let me let me share this uh, explanation and see if it if it makes sense because what you gave was the math explanation that I always got, and I said okay. You've done some. You've done some some magic with your math. Not magic, Fourier. <laughs> but I, but I, I didn't understand how it how it could possibly be. And I somewhere along the way, I finally came across this where if you have a electric field, which is what you generated across the plates, then you've got positive charge on one side, you know, an excess of positive charge on one side, an excess of negative charge on the other. Mm -hmm. So obviously. The, the electrons, because of the dielectric, the electrons cannot jump from the plus side to the minus side. You know, the charge builds up, but DC, it's not happening. The electrons don't go. But if you've done something elsewhere in the circuit that causes the uh, electrons to flow away from the, from say, the, the negatively charged uh, plate, then the electrons go away and that plate becomes less negatively charged. And at the same time, oftentimes the electrons are flowing into because there is now uh, a difference in the charge, the electrons are flowing to the neg the positively charged plate. And so even though there are no electrons jumping across the gap, on, on one side, it looks like the electrons, uh, the current is flowing, you know, if we, if we have our plates in front of us, let's say the current is flowing to the left, and on the other side is flowing to the left and now building up charge on the other plate. And if we have AC, then it turns around and it goes the other direction and the electrons go back and charge the negative plate and walk away from the positive plate. And if you're, if you're just, if you have an amp meter, let's say on either side of the plates, it looks like the current is flowing in one direction as it charges up one plate and discharges the other and mm -hmm. then charges up the other plate and discharges the other going back and forth. And even though no electrons ever jump across that gap, it looks like it passes AC current and blocks DC current. It, it doesn't just look like it, it does actually pass AC current. <laughs> <laughs> no electrons jump across the gap. Yeah, yeah but you, no electrons jump across a transformer either. Okay. So, 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 so one's a make one's a magnetically coupled device, the other one's a electric field coupled device. Yep. Another thing that might help, and I think this is effectively what Carmen just said. The net charge in any capacitor is always zero, which sounds counterintuitive because you think you're always charging and discharging. But yeah, so the but the net charge you're saying the surplus on one side and the and the the is identical to the yes yeah okay so, well, that makes it, sense. It, so basically, as your so if you had a it wouldn't be a freewheeling capacitor, but if you had a capacitor hooked up to a a resistance on the other side and you are modulating the field into it, you would actually have a proportional current going through that resistor coming generally out of the ground plane, the valence electrons in the ground plane. Mm -hmm. If I, I think I got my physics right there. 
All right. So, so for the for so for mechanical engineers, the way I explain it, it's like a you've got a, a tube with a rubber membrane in the middle, and so the the capacitor acts. If you have pressure on on in this hydraulic pipe, uh, and you have an excess of pressure on one side, the membrane will stretch in one direction but won't break. Hopefully, if you've not over uh, over pressurized it, uh, and then you can release that pressure and the membrane and and pressurize the other side, and the membrane will flex to the other side. And so you can run the pressures up and down and that membrane will, you know, curve, you know, concave to one side and then uh, go concave the other direction. And so even though no fluid ever passes through the membrane, if you were to put a current uh, device, current sensor on either side of that membrane, it would look like you had AC current going on. Except you actually have AC current. (laughs) All right. Well, we could be debating this for pretty much forever. (laughs) No, I mean that's but that but that's an important distinction. Oh yeah, no, it definitely you definitely are passing AC current, but we can get back to talking about that later when we have chalkboards <laughs> and you know we'll do a video series with us in the lab <laughs> doing capacitor analogs. Oh man, all the capacitor yeah. physics you forget after getting out of school. Uh, yeah. So James, you could probably answer this one for me. When I go to DigiKey. And I search for capacitors. There's, you know, fifty thousand different options. What uh, what sets all these capacitors apart? Are there different kinds of capacitors? Yeah, there's there's the good ones and the bad ones. Uh, you'll recognize the good ones <laughs> because they say Kemet next to them. So, oh, okay. So I, that's really the only box I have to check. Yeah, yeah. So okay. So and they're made out of tantalum. Okay, we, we're, we're going to get to that. <laughs> so I'll tell you what's funny about this. I was actually talking to a buyer one time and she asked me or she told me, she said, you know, if you guys just made one kind of capacitor, my job would be a lot easier. <laughs> and I told her, well, so would mine. <laughs> yeah, um, probably wouldn't even need your job then. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's it goes back to my my comment about materials. So different materials give us different properties, which result in different types of capacitors. Um, You know, if you need to store a bunch of charge, a bunch of energy, something like an electrolytic capacitor, aluminum or tantalum, that's going to be, that's where you're going to get the most charge stored. Um, If you need precise values or, or um, relatively well, precise values, then ceramics are going to work out really well. If you need high voltage, um, like super high voltage above 500 volts, that's where we see a lot of film capacitors being used. And so it really comes down to what are you doing with it that uh, that's going to help you pick the right capacitor. Um, now, the cool thing about working for Kemet is we make almost every type of capacitor. So I can actually answer this question without trying to sell only the types that we make. And my suggestion is look for ceramic first. Um, cause if in most cases, if, a, if a ceramic will mat, if a ceramic will work, you'll be pretty happy with that. Yeah. They tend to be a little bit cheaper too, as well. Yeah. Yeah. And if you need to light a cigarette get a tantalum. So, <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> that is, that is one of the myths of tantalum. There are many flavors. Oh, I, I, I've, I've done plenty of post high or, uh, post-mortem analysis on boards back from the field that have traces that are charred and gone as a result of tantalums. So I'm sure there are better options out there or yeah, better. Yeah. No, no manganese oxide tantalums. Yeah, right? exactly. You're living in the stone age. That's, that's actually the myth of tantalum. The tantalum's not actually what causes it to explode. In fact, it's the cathode material and the cathode material on mm-hmm. the ones that explode is manganese dioxide, MnO2. And so, 
basically the, the ignition comes from the oxygen that's available in the MnO2. And so if you replace the MnO2 with a, say, conductive polymer, then the ability for the, the part to ignite on failure is practically zero. And it's because the polymer will actually consume oxygen and it has no free-form oxygen itself. And so, so there are safe tantalums to use now. It's just that you have to make sure that they have a polymer cathode instead of the traditional MnO2 cathode. And the MnO2 uh, cathode did have a tendency to fail short, correct? Well, all capacitors actually fail short at first, and then they open up. Now, mm-hmm. it's the degree to which the short occurs that changes things. So, for example, on a film capacitor, um, if the dielectric shorts, it actually heals itself almost immediately, which is why we typically say it's very difficult for a film to fail short because it naturally opens up in a safe manner. Um for tantalum, uh, regardless of whether you're using MnO2 or polymer, the, the primary failure mode is a short. And it occurs when there's a, a fault in the dielectric. And ceramics, ceramics, from my observation, tend to, I don't want to say explode, but they tend to blow open. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's why I sort of say they, they actually short, but then they open up. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it, it really depends on how it fails. Ceramics, the most common failure is a flex crack, and that's where your PCB actually flexes, cracking the capacitor. And it was, it's one of the few times that, you know, as a capacitor manufacturer, I get to actually point at the engineer and say, it is your fault. There's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> um, even though every everyone tells me it's always not a flex crack, even though once we cross-section it, we can see that it's a flex crack. Now, we can do things to help either prevent the failure or minimize the damage. Like we can make the, the termination, we put some flexible material on it. Um, so there's things we can do to help, but the flex crack itself is all on all on the engineer. Hmm. Um, but those, what will happen there is, right, two electrodes will kind of cross with each other. You'll get a small short, and then the energy buildup is what causes it to blow open. And uh, is, is there a difference between the capacitors in terms of other properties uh, besides simply capacitance, you know, resistance and inductance? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the construction method for the capacitors has a huge um, has a huge uh, impact on the the um, ESL. Parasitics. Yeah, the parasitics in general. But the ESL is really, to me, is that's really dominated by how we actually construct the capacitor. Um, the ESR is going to be really dominated by the materials that we use. Um, so again, let's use our favorite tantalum, for example. MnO2 is actually a highly resistive material, so the ESR is very high. If we use conductive polymer, it has the magic word conductive in it. The, ES, the ESR is on the order of 100 to 1,000 times less. Is it ceramic capacitor good? Very close. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it's still ceramic still, still went out when it comes to when you're talking pure ESR, ceramics will almost always continue to win, but polymers get, they, we have some polymers that get into the single digit milliohm. Okay. Now for the, uh, the non-electrical people here, uh, you threw out another, another, uh, acronym there, ESR. What is it? Why do I care? <laughs> so I'll explain that ESR stands for equivalent series resistance. And it's basically, we call it a capacitor, but because it's made out of real materials, there's some amount of resistance in the part. And so depending on the materials of construction, that ESR will change. I'll let Carmen answer why you care, because he does a lot more design than I do. 
um, yeah, just just to put some numbers on the ESR, you know, typically the uh, the tantalum MNO2s that James is talking about, the ESR could be, you know, 100 milliohms or 50 milliohms in that range. Um, the aluminum or conductive polymer tantalums, you can get down to, like you said, single digit milliohms. And ceramics are eh, right about single digit milliohm, you know, one milliohm or so, depending on the size of the package or whatever now why you care about esr <sighs> trying to all right for for the output of a linear regulator or a switching regulator um you know there's always a little bit of feedback to keep the output exactly at the set point that you want 3.3 volts 5 volts whatever um and as you hit the output with a load transient, you know, you're disturbing your loop and you could have instabilities. And without diving into a bunch of control theory math, the series resistor, the parasitic resistor and the capacitor gives you a zero, uh, which can help buy you some phase margin and stabilize your loop. Um, and you have a nice stable system. So that's why on some linear regulator or switching regulator data sheets, you'll say you'll see a... Uh, capacitor spec for the output that says, you know, get a 10 microfarad tantalum capacitor with an ESR between 10 and 30 milliohms to keep a stable output for these load conditions. Um, so it can help stabilize your loop, but it can also hurt you as well because as you have that lone transient, on the, when the current steps up, your output voltage drops and capacitors can't change current instantaneously, but resistors can. So that equivalent series resistor, when the ideal capacitor then looks like a short, you get a voltage drop across that resistor equal to the current times the ESR. And if you have to keep your voltage inside of a window during the transient response, you could, if you have too much ESR, fall out of that window and you'll be out of spec. It's also a big deal when it comes to decoupling and filtering. Um, you'll often see strategies uh, utilizing what are called decade pairs or decade triplets. I might have made it that last one, but you know it's never just pairs. It's usually uh, three or four orders of magnitude where you'll use a one mic, a 0.1 mic, and a 10 nanofarad, 10 nanofarad or a one nanofarad. And the reason you do that is because you know, if you have a resistor in series with a capacitor, effectively you have a filter. You 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 get you have a weak RC filter which has a frequency response, and so a ten mic cap isn't as effective at super high frequency as say a point one mic, which isn't as effective as a ten nanofarad, so on and so forth. Yeah, so each capacitor will filter different uh, different frequencies of noise out of your supply line, say. And you can use, uh, if you want a good example of this, you can use uh, LT Spice or something and just do a little, you know, get a capacitor. And yeah, some data sheets even have this, but it's more fun to do with uh, LT Spice. Do a little RC filter and do the Bode plot, and it'll actually show you where the capacitor's effectiveness starts to roll off. Ooh, nice setup here for James to plug the Kevit case in. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Uh, oh, your siloning is back. All right, let me switch to plan B. Okay. You, know, you should play around with case in them. Not not to plug the Kevit parts too much, but it is pretty easy, and it's cool to see the frequency response. 
All right. Are you guys, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. I'm going to okay. use my lower quality mic, but it's going to skip the the deck. That's giving me problems. That's fine. Not a problem. You're still coming in pretty well. Okay. All right. So, Brian, yeah, you're talking about the uh, caps over frequency, you know, watching the capacitance and ESR change over frequency for the impedance. That uh, It's a nice little bump set spike there for James to talk about another Kemet product. Yeah, so we actually have a tool called KSIM, which allows us to simulate the parameters of a capacitor based on your frequency, voltage, and temperature. And so probably the most used function is to take a ceramic capacitor and look at what its ESR and impedance does across frequency. And so you can actually build up a little bit of a a filter network and see what its overall impedance will look like and then export that to go to LT-SPICE. Can you also simulate the change in dielectric with voltage? Yes. So with uh, ceramics, we know that um, if it's not an NPO or C0G, as you apply voltage, they lose capacitance. And so that's another function of this simulator is to tell you what the actual capacitance will be of a ceramic. Yes. And the NPO and C0G that James threw out, uh, another industry term, those are what's called a type 1 dielectric. And it's the... uh, you know, the whatever material makes up the dielectric in between the metal layers. Then there's also type 2 and type 3 dielectrics as well. And those have what's called a derating. And they contain no up on, on obtainium. Exactly. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's only supercapacitors. Yeah. So when your capacitor spec is 10 microfarads, uh, 6.3 volts, if you actually apply 6.3 volts to it, you will not get 10 microfarads. You will get one, maybe. You will be disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. But that's why we provide a tool to at least let you know ahead of time what's going to happen. Right. Yes. And that's that's one of the pros and cons of uh, you know the different types of capacitors. If you use a bulk capacitor, one of the tantalums or uh, – Aluminum polymer, electrolytic caps, you uh, you don't get any derating, but you have the higher ESR to deal with, which could be a good or bad thing depending on your circuit. Right. As you described that, I was thinking about the small symbols on a capacitor trying to, you know, at least the, the ones I've dealt with, you know, it had certain codes in order to tell you what the uh, uh, what the value, the um, the capacitance value was for the device. But I wonder about so in the mechanical industry, there's been great issues over the past years about counterfeit or or less than quality bolts uh, that you know were stamped as meeting, say, an SAE spec, but didn't really meet that spec. And I'm wondering, James, whether the same thing is present in the uh, passives industry, whether because these are so small and so hard to tell whether this is really a, a quality part or not, you have problems with uh, bogus devices. Yeah, you would think because they're so small and they're sold for so little that we would not see counterfeits, and mm-hmm. that's not the case. Uh, when I was an FAE, I was dealing with a counterfeit problem at least once a month. Wow. And now, a lot of those were on our larger can, like aluminum electrolytics or big box films that have enough space for a label that you can swap out easily. My favorite story is I had a customer that said, hey, we bought these 50 caps from you, and during our life test, they're failing. And so I called the factory and said, hey, what's going on with this? And he, the factory engineer asked me for the part number. And he said, is it for so-and-so? And I said, yeah, actually it is. He goes, yeah, okay. Here's the interesting thing. We've only ever built, we've only ever built 50 of those caps 
and I'm looking at them right now. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out that, you know, somebody had sold him rebadge caps. Um, but it even occurs on the surface mount stuff. Uh, ceramics, we actually, if uh, we suspect a counterfeit, we have to do a cross-section. And just based on what the electrode pattern looks like on the cross-section, we can usually tell whether or not it's our cap. Um, for mm. for tantalums, um, the counterfeiters are pretty lazy, and they usually use the wrong font on the uh, the laser marking because those those <laughs> are still big enough that we can laser mark them. And so we can usually tell just by looking at it. Um, we had a we had a case where there were supposed to be three like inside the cap. There's actually sometimes there's two or three little pellets, and it's a way for us to get the ESR down. And basically, in their circuit, their circuit would go unstable um, under certain conditions. And turned out that it was supposed to have three pellets, and all of their caps only had one. And so somebody had swapped out a different ESR spec and uh, rebatched them. So, didn't Sony have a really big problem with this at one time? I, I remember it was about a decade ago, and their laptops were failing at some really high rate. And it was third. It was somebody had swapped in gray market electrolytics. Yeah, I've, I I think everybody um, has had a problem with electrolytics at some point. Hmm. Uh, yeah. With with counterfeit electrolytics, because again, they're large enough that it's easy to to fake the labels. And actually, you brought up something kind of tangentially. Most ceramic caps, at least surface mount, are not marked. Yeah. And uh, if in, unless you use them all the time, that can be slightly disconcerting because you have a whole bunch of caps that all look the same. Like just this past week, and it was my own fault, I had 10 mic 0603s put onto a uh, – uh, where it should have been a 33 puff cap on a uh, oscillator. Yeah, oscillator didn't work. Let's just say that. <laughs> and, you know, it, it takes just a little a suspicion because it's often very difficult to measure them in circuit, too. And you're just trusting that people are putting the right caps in based on how the package is labeled or the uh, uh, the part bag is labeled. Or I should say the real. <laughs> More often how it's done. Yeah, just a. Uh... Just, just the plug, the one thing that we do during manufacturing, um, we actually do for ceramics, we measure the caps twice before they go on the reel. And so the, the very last check, um, in fact, as they're being reeled, the capacitance is checked. Now it's not a highly precise measurement. So, you know, if it's 33 picofarads, you know, it's entirely possible a 27 could sneak in, but the test is really meant to, you know, make sure that a one mic doesn't end up on a 10 mic reel. And so we actually, to help combat that from our point, we try to do that. Oh, and, and that's incredibly useful. Uh, um, these are talking, I'm talking prototype hand-assembled boards. It's real easy when you're pulling caps to, you know, just kind of mix them up into a slurry of all the same color package. Or it's really easy for the design engineer to list a 33 <laughs> picofarad cap as a 10 mic. Copy and paste. Yep. Yeah. So, James, we've talked about ceramic capacitors and uh, 
tantalum capacitors, but there's also another kind of capacitor. The it's what's known as a wet capacitor. And if you go on any of the online forums, you can always you know someone's saying, "Hey, I got this TV or this mm-hmm. computer or this toaster or whatever, and it doesn't work, and I want to fix it." And there's always someone who says, "Start replacing the big caps." Yep. Um, can you explain what's going on there and why that's such a common thing that people recommend? Yeah, yeah, and this this is good because I want to talk about. There's two different types of aluminums. So back to your digit. Digi-key question, there, here's a, I'll, I'll give you another tip to watch out for. Um, so aluminum electrolytic capacitors, um, they're actually built with an electrolyte. It's a, it's a fluid inside the, the capacitor. And that's actually what makes the connection between the, uh, the lead, the cathode lead, and the cathode of the dielectric layer. And so, so – Sorry, real quick. I know we've been talking this whole podcast about anodes and cathodes. Um, with the exception of – ceramic capacitors, the way that tantalum and aluminums are built, you wind up with a positive lead and a negative lead, and it does matter which way you connect them in your circuit. Sorry. Yeah, and let me just one more tip to throw out there is for some reason the industry marks the negative lead on aluminum and the positive lead on tantalum. So yes. <laughs> everybody, everybody's just been a- burned by that at least once that I know. <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately in that case, you, you really are burned, so... Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so these wet, these wet capacitors, basically they have a liquid inside of them. Um, now over time, the dielectric breaks down and regrows. And so that consumes the electrolyte. And then also the, they're not hermetically sealed. And so the electrolyte actually dries up over time. And so that's why you, you get a TV from 20 years ago, the, the caps inside are probably dried up. And so you need to replace those aluminum electrolytics with a with a modern um, cap that has you know actually has its electrolyte. So one thing to remember then is when you're looking for capacitors, you will see solid aluminum and you'll see wet aluminum. Solid aluminums don't have an electrolyte, and so they don't dry out over time. And so if you if you want something that's going to last 10, 15, 20 years without doing a lot of math, that might be a better option. And you can use those as a replacement for the big decoupling caps on a TV or, you know, some appliance. If you can find one that's large enough, you can. Um, okay. Generally, you're probably going to – if you're replacing a wet, you'll probably have to just replace it with another wet. Yeah, it's worth taking a stab at least on DigiKey and seeing what you got. Absolutely. Very cool. So there's also an, uh, another type of capacitor. I guess this would be our fourth type if we just consider the big aluminum tantalum and ceramic. It's the, uh, you know, all the buzz on the internet and it's known as a supercapacitor. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you tell us what makes a supercapacitor different from all these other types? So it's actually, it's in a way it's no different, but fundamentally there is a bit of a difference and it has to do with the way that we get to the, the, the three elements, the, the two electrodes and the dielectric. And so in a supercapacitor, we're using what we're basically using is what's called a Helmholtz layer. And that is an interface between a liquid and a solid. And so when you form that interface, you actually form a whole bunch of basically a layer of ions. And those ions are actually your dielectric thickness. And so what we know about capacitors is the smaller you can get that dielectric thickness, the higher you, your effective capacitance will be. And so you have these really small ions and you have a whole bunch of them. And so with that, you end up with a really high capacitance device. 
Yeah, we've been talking about, you know, one microfarad or, you know, 0.1 microfarads, and you can get supercapacitors. Uh, when I was at Kemet, I held a 3,000 farad capacitor in my hands. <laughs> wow. Which is, what is that, nine orders of magnitude larger <laughs> yeah. than a one microfarad cap? Now, do you remember that one you were holding? Do you remember what the rate of voltage for that capacitor was? Uh, I believe it was 2.7 volts, yep. but I'll have to check the picture I have on my phone here. Yeah, yeah, it would have been 2.7 or 3. We recently did a 3. But yeah, yeah, so you get a lot of capacitance, but the voltage, rate of voltage is really small. Yeah, 2.7 volts. And I remember uh, the one engineer who was sitting at the table with me said it was used in the engine of a dump truck, I believe to help supplement something. I can't remember the exact explanation, but I just remembered capacitors in a dump truck. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a whole bunch of 3,000 farad capacitors. Good, because I'm glad something like that is surrounded by a ton of metal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and that might be a good introduction to my favorite part of supercapacitors. Which is? Oh, uh, they can be dangerous. Um, Oh, yeah. And at least one at least one occasion, I have witnessed the result of a. I think it was a a four or an eight farad capacitor blowing up, super cap blowing up, and it literally blew a circuit board into several pieces. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Oh yeah, it's not to be messed with. Yeah. So there, there's one more safety thing, and I always like to bring this up just so that um, so that everybody's aware. It's not I don't mean to scare anybody when I mention this, but it is something to be aware of if you're designing with supercapacitors. Um, there's two different electrolytes that are used. So these are wet capacitors. That's actually part mm-hmm. of how we get right. That's how we get to the high capacitance. And there's an acetyl, acetyl I'm sorry. There's an acetonitrile based. And then there's a polypropylene carbonate-based electrolyte. So I'll call that one PC. The acetonitrile, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but um, it does have one nasty property, and that's when it ignites, it burns off cyanide gas, Ooh. which I haven't done a marketing <laughs> report, but I don't think that's generally something people want to publish in their data sheets. No, mm-hmm. I think it violates the Geneva Convention, too. <laughs> yeah, and, and in fact... It wasn't until just a couple of uh, in, uh, until a couple of years ago there were a number of countries where you couldn't even ship these devices in because of that material. Um, now that's been relaxed, and I think um, more people understand how to safely use it. But like I said, I just want to point that one out because sometimes I hear people say, "Well, why don't we get rid of lithium ion and use supercaps instead?" Well, the the highest capacitance supercaps use acetonitrile, so it's not like it's a one for one safety replacement. Mm-hmm. They also kind of fit this, you know, it, it's almost like they're vaguely capacitors too, as opposed to simply being really weak batteries mm. because the ESR is so high. Generally, you can you can put a lot of charge in them, but a lot of them you can't or you wouldn't want to take a ton of current out of them. Uh, if I remember correctly, a lot of them actually have uh, – you have to add additional resistance. And I don't know if chemists do, but I mean, you have to add additional resistance in order to safely charge and discharge them. Yeah, that's actually, so if you, so we actually have two types. We have the small surface mount stuff and those you have to be somewhat careful about. Um, 
they're a little bit older design. The the big cans are actually relatively safe and good at getting large amounts of current out. But again, mm-hmm. it is you, you, you hit the the nail on the head. A lot of people think of it, oh, it's a capacitor, so I can draw infinite current out of it, and that's not the case. There's also a lifetime associated with supercaps. So unlike, say, a tantalum or a solid aluminum, which has lifetimes in the hundreds of years, supercaps do have a cycle count. Now, it's orders at least an order of magnitude better than a comparable battery, but they're, they don't last forever. Would you say that most supercaps in the world are probably being used in uh, like uh, SRAM holdup or uh, some sort of non-volatile holdup voltage, or are they being used in uh, you know bulk holdup in case of a power interruption? Yeah, there's. There, I think both of those are popular applications, and then the third is kind of this dump truck dump truck idea where they'll work as a battery assist. Mm-hmm. So it just depends on the size of the cap, but they kind of fit into those three areas. So you, you talked about some of the drawbacks of using supercapacitors, um, and I'm assuming you know the, the cyanide gas is definitely one of them. Uh, are any of these uh, challenges solved with the use of graphene to make the capacitor? <laughs> well, you know, I I have some mixed feelings about graphene. Um, I think it's a fantastic material. Um, we'll definitely see lower ESRs. Um, low ESR means longer life, means better power delivery. Uh, you'll get the, the structure allows for high surface area, so you get more capacitance. So all those things sound really good. Um, the thing about graphene, though, is it, it barely exists. And <laughs> I can make some with scotch tape and pencil it. How does it barely exist? Yeah, yeah. And you know, this, this, this story about, well, if you have a DVD burner, you can make graphene keeps floating around. And that's true. But I just wanted people to be a little bit cautious about it. I mean, I, I wrote a, or a blog post on my blog where I kind of graphed out or kept track of all the amazing things that graphene were going to do. You know, it's going to be for supercapacitors, better transistors, replace batteries, um, be better dental implants, uh, <laughs> a replacement for speakers, eliminate the need for flashes and cell phones. You know, you just kind of at, at some point you got to look at it and say, um, it can't do all these things. I mean, it just – Yeah. Right. And so I do think it will massively improve things like supercapacitors and, and uh, uh, wideband gap transistors. But, you know, first, we need to learn how to mass produce it. And I don't think anyone's been able to mass produce it yet. Hmm. Interesting. Maybe one of your fancy material scientists can uh, figure that one out. Yeah. And actually, just to make a plug, if, if somebody listening is mass producing graphene, feel free to contact me. Because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What are the benefits that Kemet would offer as opposed to taking over the world? Um, <laughs> can you compete with that? Yeah. In case I already have a lease on a volcano layer, you know. <laughs> so James is is the uh, – I'm sure Kemet at all times is working on all products uh, diligently and, and without uh, without rest. But I'm just kind of curious, what, uh, what is the – what is the future of capacitors? Is are are there great advances yet to be made in in ceramic capa- uh, capacitors, or is is everything sort of focused on these uh, super caps? Um, you know, it's really mixed. I think what we're seeing was so. In order for capacitors, and I'm sure this applies to other components and things, but 
you know, the, the stumbling block we have with capacitors is we need new materials so that we can exploit different properties of new materials. And so, for example, if I look at ceramics, virtually all class two ceramics use the same basic material for the dielectric. And so mm-hmm. until we can learn to dope it with something else or use a different material, we're kind of limited to what we can do. So it turns into let's make it smaller, cheaper, faster, you know, just like right. any other um, engineering project. We, when I look at aluminum, tantalum, film, and supercapacitors, there are seemingly uh, promising materials that are being developed in all those areas that could extend the, the technologies that are being used there. So mm-hmm. I think we'll see bigger leaps with some of the other dielectrics while we just see kind of evolutionary things happen with ceramics. Okay. Hey, those evolutionary things with ceramics certainly help me out a lot. Being able to buy a 22 microfarad cap in a 603 package is nothing short of a miracle. Well, I think we can do that. You just can't apply voltage to it. <laughs> I'll make it work. I got the sample sitting on my desk. <laughs> Although it's not a lot of voltage I'm applying to it. It's like a volt. But it's got to do 30 amps. So Yeah, yeah. At a very high rep rate. But that's all I can say. So you're saying Kevin is not about to launch its ultracapacitor line. <laughs> Gigafarads. <laughs> oh, what was that? No, no, what was the uh, system a few years ago? Uh, EE store. That was a big rage for a while. You. High di- like ultra high dielectric devices, high voltage, high dielectric. Yeah, I mean it's you got me. We 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 see things come and go. So I think you know supercapacitors have actually stuck around quite a while. Um, even though the market for them hasn't developed as quickly as we had hoped. So, yeah, ask, ask, this is a big thing with Chris Campbell. I'll ask him about it sometime. It's, it's funny. All right. It, it, it's kind of, it's kind of like everyone has their own initial tech, some technology that had a ton of promise early in your engineering career. And then you get to watch as those, you know, as that becomes vaporware. And you'll never quite trust extraordinary claims ever again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so James Bryan kind of hinted at this application when he was asking about super caps and what they're good for and you talked about it very briefly um and it's uh it's not DC blocking or decoupling although it sort of kind of is it's uh hold up applications and the one you guys always mentioned when I was at Kemet was um using it in SSDs. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, yeah. And this is actually an interesting one because um, we actually, the, we, the industry started using supercapacitors, but then had to find an alternative. <clears throat> so in a solid state disk drive, um, you know, flash memory is relatively slow. And so it takes a little bit of time to write, write out data. So sometimes there's a buffer for, um, to, for write, to improve write performance. But there's also some non-volatile, I'm sorry, there's volatile memory that's keeping track of what's stored in the flash memory. So they actually, you know, they actually keep kind of like the partition table, if you will, in RAM. And so when the drive loses power, that that table has to be written somewhere. So they, they commit it to flash and that takes some amount of time. And so the idea with an SSD is that you, you basically need a bulk or a, a bank of, of energy to allow time for that, that operation to complete. Um, now, for consumer-level SSDs, like in a laptop, um, this probably isn't being done. But on enterprise-level 
um, SSDs that are being used to run data centers. And I'm talking about drives that cost on the order of a thousand dollars, um, for a couple hundred, um, yeah, for a couple hundred gigabytes. Um, you know, we're talking really high end applications here. Those need to, to commit some, some RAM into flash. And so what we found was in early on, um, designers wanted to use super caps because of the, the energy density. But one of the trade-offs of super caps is they're usually not rated to a full industrial range. And so above 60, 60 degrees C or so, you start to get into a gray area on whether or not the cap will survive. And so because of that and the need to operate up to 85, um, we the second generation of SSDs looked for an alternative. And so that's where we started looking at using aluminum polymers and tantalum polymers as an alternative for this bank of energy. Hmm. Yeah, that was, that was a really cool presentation because, you know, instead of talking about frequency response of caps or, you know, any of the normal, you know, parameters you try to optimize for is was talking about optimizing for energy density. And right. it was just a, a nice little niche application that you've, you wouldn't normally think about. Yeah. And the, 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 you know, if you just, if you just engineer on paper and you don't actually build anything, um, you look at energy is one half the capacitance times the voltage squared. And so the thought is if we can drive up the voltage, then we can get a lot more energy storage in the same space. Well, in the real world, um, in every capacitor technology, as you improve the, the voltage performance, you end up losing capacitance for some reason. And so there's definitely kind of a, you know, like in this application, you know, we're always looking for what's the maximum voltage we can use while still getting the maximum capacitance possible. Are there other issues beyond dielectric saturation? Um, it, it's it, it's a difficult um, it's it's difficult to answer because there's a lot mm-hmm. of what I would consider secondary characteristics that that kind of come into play, mm-hmm. and so it's not any one thing. It's for example on tantalums, um, you start to actually cut off parts of the. The, uh, the capacitive element as you go to higher voltages, which actually causes a loss in capacitance. On a, say, aluminum, if you grow the dielectric thicker, you just effectively get less capacitance. And so, you know, it's kind of a, there, there's not any one thing that you can fix. It's, it's multiple issues. That's cool. Yeah, that was definitely one of the more technical presentations I saw at my time at Kemet. <laughs> so, so I'm kind of curious, isn't a, uh, isn't an, uh, Solid state disk drive really a bunch of little capacitors. <laughs> I mean, you're storing charge for each bit. Yeah, it's actually yes. It's, it's kind of funny because it's you know it's a capacitor company helping guys build big arrays of arrays of capacitors in a way. <laughs> yes, and when we say it's actually capacitors, it's using tunneling properties of MOSFETs. Uh, if I have that correct. <laughs> so yeah, uh, you're storing wh- charge in a MOSFET. Whereas DRAM, I believe, is. Actually, capacitors is not. Yeah, DRAM uh, is right. Probably, I don't know. It's been a while since yeah, I D- looked at all these topologies. <laughs> yeah, DRAM is because that's right. Because you have to go back and refresh DRAM. Static RAM. Yeah, holds its holds its. You're just flipping the transistor. Yeah, I don't know enough to wing a an in depth dive there. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, so James, as we kind of wind this podcast down here, we've we've kept you long enough. Do you, uh, I, I keep mentioning that I've been to Kemet in the the recent past. Do you wanna do you wanna plug the Kemet Institute of Technology? 
Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for giving me a chance to do that because I think Kimmin Institute of Technology, we call it KIT, K-I-T, I think it's something that is, uh, is a little bit unique in the passive world. I think, um, you know, when I was at Agilent, we did seminars all the time. But so basically, KIT is a technical seminar where we try to teach engineers um, more about capacitors. And so I think, as you saw, Carmen, we, we break it down to here are some of the design considerations we have to make based on the dielectric type. And then here's the characteristics that each of those will have. And the intention isn't to make everybody a capacitor expert, but at least to provide enough information that while you're sitting down and doing a design or going through the thousands of parts on DigiKey to try to give you that one extra piece of information to help make the decision between, well, is it this part or this part the best one? Or at least narrow it down to two or three so that one of our FAEs can help you work through, okay, here's the right one to use. And so we we do a big seminar in Simpsonville, South Carolina, where our headquarters is once a year. And that's where uh, Carmen went to and where we actually take you around and show some of our pilot lines to actually see how the how capacitors are made. But KIT is held around the world. And in fact, this year we're, we're targeted to do at least 100 seminars worldwide. And so if you're interested in learning about capacitors to a you know a little bit more technical degree. Um if you just go to kemet.com slash kit kit, you can see what the schedule looks like. Yes. And if you're trying to justify it to your boss, um it is free to register. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we you know we don't we don't charge anything for it. You know, it travels up to you. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it was I I can say it was a it was a really good course. Um I learned quite a bit. You know, you had the first day where they talked about how each capacitor is made and you learn how the parasitics come about due to construction and all that. And then there was an application section and then the factory tours that James was talking about were really cool. Now, unfortunately, when we go around the world, we lose the factory tours, but um, <laughs> we, we do, we do make sure that every presenter has um, slides and videos of some of our factories. So if you were really interested in how something works, we, we do have a little bit of material to help, but yeah, it's not as good as walking up to the machine. Mm-hmm. And I could have spent all day. I could have done an internship in that uh, reliability testing lab with Greg. He was he was awesome. <laughs> yeah, we have we have um, uh, every time I go into our reliability lab, we have more life test ovens, and it always surprises me how much testing we have to do on these parts just to oh, just yeah. to qualify them. Um, you know, we they they go through a pretty serious battery before we release them. Well, you got people like me who just want it has to work in this situation. No questions asked. It has to work. Period. Well, you know, uh, you know, I'll freely admit, Kemet's not the largest capacitor manufacturer. Um, we're we're one of the largest. We're certainly um, in terms of since we don't really make anything else today. However, even though we're not the largest, we make on average thirty six billion components a year. Which, (laughs) when you do the math, comes down to something like a thousand per second. And so, you know, if you take what you just said and add it to that, it's like, okay, we're making 36 billion of these every year. And the expectation is that every one of them works every single time. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a, that's a difficult, uh, uh, it's difficult to achieve, but we strive for it. That is an impressive (laughs) number. A 1% failure rate is only 360 million. (laughs) (laughs) All 
All right, James. Well, I think we've uh, pretty much dived as deep as we're going to get without taking up your whole evening here. <laughs> um, you also did an episode of the SparkGap podcast back in the spring, I believe it was, for any of our listeners who want to you know, dive a little bit more into the electrical side of capacitors, you know, what all the different uh, dielectrics are and how they perform over temperature. Um, so we can put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, is there anything else you want to plug for Kemet here before we wrap it up? Yeah, so we actually we just released the new uh, learning resource. We call it Engineering Center, and so we basically take we've taken our technical content and organized it into hopefully logical means. Um, and we've also created a blog so that we can kind of get some of these questions that come up um, out a little bit quicker so that maybe instead of waiting for an FAE, we might already have an answer to your question. And so if you have questions about capacitors, you can go, you can find engineering center either on our website or at engineeringcenter.com. Yeah, definitely check it out and uh, at least play with the capacitors versus frequency tool. That is a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> you may not understand it, but you'll make some pretty graphs. <laughs> so anything non, uh, non Kemet related that you want to plug your, your YouTube channel or uh, your blog? Yeah. So just uh, two things that I do in my, my free time. So um, YouTube, there's a channel called Adams, A-D-D, um, they're animated tutorials that are intended for electronics beginners. So maybe if you don't have an electrical background or, or you know somebody that wants to get into electronics, that's kind of what those are targeted at. And then every week I do a blog post at baldengineer.com. And how, how did you come up with that name, Bald Engineer? Well, it was a really difficult process. I looked in the mirror and thought, hey, <laughs> <laughs> that might work. You know, it, I have a pretty common name, so I, it's, I couldn't get my name on most of the social media channels, so I had to be more creative. <laughs> You're already on the BBS forums. You couldn't have domain name squatted on something? <laughs> no, I just didn't have that foresight. <sighs> well, yeah, I wish hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> All right, James. Well, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, I definitely had a nice nice time. Hope you did too. And now I've, I've got a few more resources now I'm going to have to check out online. Hell yeah. Our, our show notes will be chock full of links here for anyone who wants to learn more about <laughs> capacitors. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. I had a good time. You're welcome. And uh, real quick, right before we uh, wrap up here, if any of the listeners want to get in contact with you, how should they go about doing that? It's probably easiest to find me on Twitter. Again, it's uh, Bald Engineer. All right, cool. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you, James. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, James. Thank you, James. You're welcome. Thank you. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.